welcome. It's very nice to see so many people in the house. On a Tuesday night, we're here to discuss the situation in Uganda. And we have a very distinguished guest, uh, Mr. Charles Onyango-Ubu, uh, straight from Kenya. Yes. And um, uh, we have uh, the moderator for the evening. It's Annette Kiss of Lovingspark. Uh, Annette has uh, a master's in journalism from the University of Oslo, but she also has a bachelor in mass communication from Makerere. Uh, she's also Ugandan, and she's now working as a teacher, but she's the leader of the Ugandan Asso Association here in, in Norway. Uh, very, very uh, good journalist, this one. So we are very excited to hear how the conversation will, will go. And I ask the audience to Keep your cool. This is um, it's a very uh, emotional subject. GPS signal lost. Oops. <laughs> Sorry. Sure. Let's hope that's not an indicator of what will happen. Um, so if you could all hold your questions to the end, there will be uh, time for questions um, afterwards. So I'll just, I think I'll just leave it to you, Anna. Thank you. Welcome. Let's give them. Should I stand or should I sit till the... It's up to you. It's up to me. I can stand while introducing Charles yeah. and then we sit while we're talking. Yeah. As Hilda said, my name is Annette. I am Ugandan from Hosea and I am a mother of three. I moved to Norway 15 years ago after I got crazy and fell in love with a Norwegian man. <laughs> so that's how I ended up here. And I am, uh, they called me yesterday <laughs> to ask me to lead the debate today. So you can imagine I have butterflies in my stomach. <laughs> but I think you're very nice people, so maybe I have nothing to fear, do I? Do I have something? No. Thank you. You are the best. Um, yeah, now I need my papers. <coughs> Charles Konyango Obo, I think most people in East Africa have heard about him or have read something that he has written. Um, he is a, a Ugandan author. He is a journalist, he is a former editor of Mail and Guardian Africa. He is the former managing editor of The Monitor. The Monitor is a daily Ugandan newspaper, the leading independent Ugandan newspaper. He's a former executive editor of the Africa and Digital Media Division with the Nation Media Group, based in Nairobi. <coughs> You are considered the finest of the finest among journalists. You don't believe it. <laughs> as far as I am concerned, I am in the presence of royalty. <laughs> because Charles started the mass communication department at Makerere University, from where I attained my bachelor's degree. He started it and told for five years, he just told me, without being paid. <laughs> that is dedication. And from there, he, together with some journalists and business people, started the Monitor Publications, right? 
on the Monitor Publications, which is now 26 years old, I believe, yeah. was my last employer before I moved to Norway. <laughs> so I am very much indebted to you personally and have a lot of respect for what you do. I believe many people do that because you are one of the few journalists who haven't changed sides <laughs> over the years. <laughs> You have maintained your integrity, and we very much appreciate that. Uh, Mr. Charles Onyango Obo is currently very much a political commentator, commenting about politics in Africa generally, but especially in uh, uh, Eastern Africa. And uh, he's a man who knows so much about what's going on in our region. Currently, he's run, he runs uh, his own digital media unit, and uh, I read up a little bit about it. It consists of uh, something that's called Africa Explainer, something that's called Africapedia, and something that's called Rogue Chiefs. I think the term Rogue Chiefs rings a bell in our heads, those of us who are Africans, because we tend to think of our presidents. <laughs> as rogue chiefs, unfortunately. So that's Mr. Charles Onyango Obo. And uh, today we will be discussing uh, um, a number of things, but uh, the main title of the event is, um, it skips my mind suddenly, <laughs> the Bobby Wine Effect. Uh, we hope that uh, Charles can enlighten us, give us some insights to explain the situation, but also to help us understand what might be going on, because some analysis can be very enlightening on these issues. Charles, do you want to say hello before I sit down and we start discussing? Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay. And on that note, I will sit down and we start getting into the discussion. Can you see me? No? But you can see Charles, right? No. Yeah. No? So, Charles, we are, we are having a situation where suddenly the country of Uganda is on fire. And it fairly happened when a, a young man who is uh, is he 36 years old? Came onto the stage and uh, challenging a man who is uh, 70, 75 years now, is he? Officially. Officially. <laughs> <laughs> challenging a man who is 75 years old and who has been in power for all of 36 years. So by that calculation and from the article you wrote recently... 32. 32 years, yes, sorry. So from also the article you wrote recently, when Museveni became president in Uganda, Bobby Wine was uh, jumping about in the puddles, the muddy puddles of Kamocha, <laughs> which is a suburb of Kampala, a little four-year-old boy. Yeah. So the question then is, uh, Charles, why do you think that the authorities are so scared of the movements of Bobby Wine? Uh, they are uh, 
basically tourism, but we'll talk about uh, uh, two. Um, if, uh, if you go on social media now and you Google and you, you have a tool that searches the profile pictures that people use on, uh, on Twitter, um, something remarkable happened because uh, for, for a very long time, the most popular profile picture was of Thomas Sankara, the former uh, president, this, the slain president of Burkina Faso, who was killed in 1987. And then, of course, you know, people, they are people who are popular in Africa, Nelson Mandela, one of them, Rwanda president Paul Kagame. But the most remarkable thing is that Bobby Wine became the first person to have more profile pictures of him than Thomas Sankara. It's something that even people like Paul Kagame and all these people wouldn't do. So I think that the biggest threat is that the first one is that Bobby Wine captured the imagination. He is the first politician to capture the imagination of uh, many Africans, young Africans, in that fashion. So, so for example, if you go to both Uganda and Kenya, they are. It's a very popular indicator the pictures people draw on matatus and on their border border bikes, motorcycle bikes. So there are very many pictures. All of a sudden, you know, you look behind every car on motorcycle as Bobby Wine. So I think that. Because power in every place relates on uh, the narrative, you know. Uh, you don't have power, you can have guns and all that kind of thing. But without a popular story behind it, holding power becomes very difficult. So the thing is that Bobby Wine has become, in Uganda at least, the first politician to steal the popular imagination and narrative away from 70. So that is primarily why they have responded the way they have uh, to him. But having said that, it's, uh, then we go to the second question. Because uh, without doubt, Bobby Wine has captured the imagination. The question then, is he the politician who is relevant to the times? And, and that's a much more debatable issue. But, but to the fact that he has captured the imagination and has stolen the thunder, I was in, uh, you know, something else. We ran a search, and you know, until, until Bobby Wine came on the scene, the most covered African leader this year in, uh, in the broad African international press was uh, the Prime Minister of Ethiopia, the new Prime Minister of Ethiopia. Abi Mohammed. There have actually been more stories on Bobby Wine than there have been on Abi Mohammed. And if you think of it, it's just unbelievable. Because it's, I mean, Abi has done so many things. He has made peace with, he has reformed the economy. Bobby Wine has just been Bobby Wine. So it's, 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 it's dramatic that he has been able to shift things in that way. Why, Charles, why has this boy, this kid from the slums, managed to capture 
the attention of so many people in Uganda and across the world. Okay, then they will get to the more, to the more difficult thing, eh? and it can be boring. So let me see <laughs> if I can tell in. Uh, because one of the things, if you see, if you look at the history of Africa from the independence period, there is when a generation, and we can use generation to, to discuss 25 to 30 years. Whenever a new generation arrives, we have political crisis. So that if you see the coup, the period of the 70s where we had many coups and early, it was basically the generation of the young independents who found that independence hadn't worked for them. And the movement resulted in coups. What is happening in Uganda and most of Africa is that this is the first post-Cold War generation. And they have come with a whole set of expectations about what they will get from the post-war, I mean the post-Cold War settlement. And they haven't got that. So there is that aspect which explains why you would go to Ghana. I mean, I was in Ghana about uh, three weeks ago, and there are still posters of Bobby Wine. Really? Yes. That's interesting. And, uh, then the, so, so there's a whole generation of Africa who feel that the post-Cold War generation, who feel they have not got their piece of the pie. Um, and then secondly, is his, perhaps more than other politicians, he has found the language. He's able to speak in, uh, in images, in iconography, which, which young people understand. But the third is a reality, because if you take the case of Uganda, I think we are one of the youngest countries in the world. I think the second, the second youngest, youngest yeah. In the mm -hmm. youngest. Uh, you have nearly 80% of the population is uh, under, under 35. Under 30, actually. Under 30. Yeah. There was something about 19 years, was that the bigger segment of the, no, the average age? Yes. The now is 19 years. No, no, the average age 19 is Kenya. I think Uganda is lower. The average really? is 16, about. Yes. Wow. Yeah. So, and. Uh, and youth unemployment, depending on how you look at it, is uh, anything between 32 uh, to 36%. So, it's, it's, uh, so there's a whole set, and then that is complicated by the fact, like you said earlier, that you have a president who has been in power for 32 years. So people just default to the position that look at any change you will bring a whole set I mean, a whole set of policies which will improve our lot. And I guess if Museveni had been in power for five years or ten, the conversation would be different. Mm. Yeah. People, some people and analysts say that uh, Museveni's problem, that he is racing against um, a generation that has uh, not seen anything besides him, that his overstaying in power is the problem because now there's a whole new generation that have not seen anything else and they're therefore uncomfortable, unemployed, uncomfortable and they want something new <coughs> and that this generation might manage to get rid of him 
because they are not part of the older generation that felt very indebted to him. Yes, yes, that is true that older people kind of tend to remember things before Museveni came to power. And it's no doubt things were horrible. I mean, he made, he's made, uh, he made uh, um, you know, a tremendous change. But the, there are two things. Um, I was, I was, uh, Museveni, by the way, is, he is right when he says that he's essentially the president, he kind of sees himself as a victim of his success. And, and people laugh at him, uh, you know, because I remember he said that part of the problem was that uh, a lot of children now survive because they were immunized. Yeah. And, and so, it's, but, but you know, there's a grain of truth in that because if, if you see life expectancy in Museveni's presidency has gone up by 20 years, you know, in Uganda. And, uh, and uh, I was discussing this with Niels. If uh, I think Uganda and Senegal were the first countries to introduce universal free primary education in 1996 in Africa. So what has happened is that, if, you know, if the economy had grown, these young people who went through the system would have gotten jobs and all that, but, but they haven't. So actually his otherwise positive policies created a crisis of expectation. And the fact that partly because of corruption, uh, the universal primary education has produced people who don't have tremendous skills. It was substandard, it was botched up in many ways. So even, you know, um, many have an average like, good education, but it's not excellent even for regional standards. So, so there is this crisis, you know, you took us to school, what are we going to get? So in that sense, he is, uh, he shot himself in the foot, if you like. Eh? So another person would see it as a good problem to have. Eh? I think, I think his problem is that he doesn't, um, so, so for example, the president goes around a lot. His response to a lot of these youth groups is he does understand that if he created a youth innovation fund, for example, that he would be able to channel capital to youth enterprises. Some of them would seed, some of them would succeed, others would fail. But he does not do that because he would have to, it would be an institutional response. You know, set up a youth fund, maybe give a bank to manage it. Because he thinks that will not translate into personal capital for him. So he walks around the country with sacks of money, you know, giving this to young people, because that way he is seen as the one who is giving it. The big man. Yeah. Mm. And he gets direct political capital for it. The thing is that doesn't work. That's fine. Yeah. It, 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 is that because then people see it as a gift, and there are no administrative structure to work. To if, it. Yeah, mm. you know, if you lend personal money, at a minimum, you'd say, what is your business plan? What is your feasibility study? What is your sense of when you will make a return on that? So, but because he doesn't do that, because then it will not be him directly giving the money. He gives it out directly at rallies and on roadsides, and it's not effective. So he's letting a crisis go to waste.
33 people in total ended up behind bars as a result of the chaos that arose from the by-election in Arua uh, in August and uh, MPs were beaten up and arrested and we all know the story. Uh, by the time we got to see um, Bobby Wine, he was supported on crutches and he looked completely beaten up. Um, people died. Uh, there's the story of the Chambogo student who was going to deliver her paper for marking and she got a bullet in her head and died. The story of the girl in, uh, in Katwe who got a bullet in her bum while well, she just ended up in a crowd and then she was hurt and all the chaos that has been going on. Then the question is, uh, Charles, if the government had not reacted the way it did to the chaos in Arua, do you think Bobby Wine would have become as popular as he is? What has this done for him? <coughs> it was a gift, an expensive one, mm. <laughs> because he paid very dearly for it. Eh? But uh, it's, 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 it's raised him, but I think you must understand the logic of power in Uganda and uh, a lot of countries where we have what we call liberation parties in Africa. Because you come to power and you know Angola and one second thing Mozambique, you come to power, you fight for it. And uh, it is very important for purposes of control, at least that's how they see it, to keep showing one that you are willing to use violence to retain uh, power, but that you are willing to make it very, very costly for anyone who will oppose you. So they, in many ways, once you are stuck in that kind of politics, there is no retreat. It is, it's kind of an addiction you can't get rid of. So once any signs of militancy, as we saw in a row in the by-elections, any sign of militancy has to be made with a higher level of terror. Show that I am willing to burn the house down. So it is, it's a vicious cycle of politics, which I think, I don't see how we get out of it. We will probably just have to burn the house down and see what's left in the ashes. <laughs> yeah, because I am wondering, um, how far do you think the government is willing to take this? Because by torturing politicians and uh, clamping down on protests, they gave Bobby Wine and the new movement a lot of exposure and support, both domestically and internationally. Kenya has been having uh, Bobby Wine meetings in South Africa and all over the place. So. And the wider view, it's been good for Bobby Wine and his movement. But then I'm wondering, do you think, because Ugandans have been known to be cowards when it comes to actually going out into the streets. They can't be very bold behind the, uh, the, 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 the computer, but if they have to go out, then they are cowards. Do you think that this clamping down on violence shall manage to keep people away like it has done in the past? Or you think we're now past that stage and people are ready to, like Bobby Wan says, we, we what does he say? He say we, we try or we die trying, something like that. 
we people power we win or we die trying do you think people feel that way that either we win or we die trying they do but but unfortunately i think that uh, um, what we are seeing is just the beginning i think that the ability of the of the uganda government to raise the stakes eh, is being underestimated and they can you think so? Oh boy, boy, boy. You think they can burn down the cities? It is, uh, it is, uh, it is, uh, they, uh, this, this is nothing. They will, they will raise it. And I think that really, um, yes. So if it remains at this level, mm -hmm. you would say uh, they would overcome. But I think they are willing to raise the state much, much, much higher. It's the logic of liberation parties. Hmm. And uh, and uh, and they will because if you look if you look um, for example we which is I think something which help if you know the Uganda army actually stopped the advance of Al Shabaab you know around the Mogadishu and um, you sh I mean I went there you should actually see what they are willing to do. To make it happen. What were they willing to do, Charles? It Tell us. Because it's not a garden party. Hmm. Uh, Al, you know, Al Shabab are a different uh, uh, class of. So they went to, you know, to to fairly uh, shocking uh, levels to make it uh, work, and so so that same tradition, I think they are willing to bring those kind of intervention home to protect uh, the power of the government. And I think if they do, most Ugandans will blink. You think people will back off? Oh, yeah. Hmm. It is, it is, I don't see how they will. They say that uh, you can do this thing until there are one million people on the streets, like in Egypt, and then there is no army which will continue. But I don't think we'll get one million people on the streets. You're not optimistic about that. No, no, no I'm not. It's not optimistic. <laughs> it's realistic. <laughs> hmm. Yes. Um, in the unlikely event, from what you seem to be saying, you seem to be saying the government will cling on to power until the last man lays dead. But in the unlikely event that they actually give up, do you think Bobby Wine stands a chance of running a country like Uganda? He, he would be an important part of it because mm -hmm. he represents. Because um, apart apart from everything else, I I personally do not think that the thing about Bobby Wine is that he represents the youth. I think there is something very fundamental and structural about Uganda which the guy uh, taps into. And uh, and and you know one of them. In the south of the country, for example, it is uh, it is uh, there is a there is a much more deeper issue, and I think that has got to do with the land. That the the Bobby Wine appeal has got to do with some of the issues we have with land in parts of the country, particularly the south, because what has happened is that the nature of power means that the people who are able to buy land of increasingly impoverished people in the south are uh, you know
people who have connections to the system and are outside the south, you know, the central south. So there is, there is a crisis of a growing landlessness and what people feel is displacement. And, and if you ask me that the emotions, the reason why we've seen so much militancy for Bobby Wine, and even why he was willing to, I mean, he was able to win the election so easily despite opposition, is that because I think he represents a much deeper grievance than just the fact that the youth uh, are jobless. Yes, mm. and it's got to do with a very, very emotional issue of land. Mm. Yeah. I don't know whether I got the answer I'm looking for. Was that a no or yes, he can manage as a leader of Uganda? At this point, I'm not sure because you know the thing is that the the um, for Uganda to get out of it is present rat hole. It has to build a much broader alliance because apart from the specific issue, there are very very serious issues about the marginalisation and exclusion of large sections of the country. For example, the north, mm. um, you know, and parts of the east. There, has, there are some serious issues, again, with the landlessness in the West, exclusion in the extreme uh, West. So it, it and, and, and that's why I say that the piece that Bobby Wine represents is an important piece of it, but it's not the whole of it. To govern Uganda in ways in which it doesn't break, hmm. you know, he has to build a broader, broader coalition. But remember, it's just one, one year in power. Mm. So if he makes the right alliances, he will be able, I think he could, they could be able to build uh, a movement. Mm. But as of now, I personally think that the more likely scenario mm. for what, you know, for the fall of or the end of the Museveni government is an internal crisis. Cool. No. <laughs> I don't no think cool. we'll have a coup again. No. <laughs> an, an internal crisis in the ruling party, mm. not an external one. You think so? We hope you're wrong. Yeah, I hope <laughs> I'm wrong. <laughs> um, I was thinking that we could talk a little bit about the presidential term limits um, to extend what we are discussing. And uh, Bobby Wine produced the song, released the song, We Are Fighting for Freedom, just before the constitution was amended to allow people over 75 years to stand. And uh, some people have written that the song is the anthem in uh, Kamocha. You hear it. <laughs> we are fighting for freedom everywhere. And we all observed and saw the scenes that unfolded in the parliament. It was, uh, it was not a parliament where to be proud of, you know, uh, some serious uh, um, physical fights that went on. Um, the question then is, um, Charles, that this change of the constitution was just the latest of many changes that have been done to amend the constitution to suit uh, the current president. Um, <clears throat> what do you think this means for the country, that the change to allow him to stand again in 2021? What are we going to do? Is, is he going to drop dead in the presidency? <laughs> yeah, you know, but you know, uh, Museveni is a healthy man. 
doesn't smoke, doesn't drink, he exercises, so it's going to be around for So the country is in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but he, and, and here is one of the things, is that uh, one of the surprising things about that change is, uh, is that, because you know, Museveni and a lot of these other leaders, they actually have the ability to rule without, without legality. Without the parliament. He said that yeah. uh, recently. So, mm. in many ways, it's a ray of hope mm. yeah, that even with all the power he had, he felt he still could not just. Uh, I mean, if the election came up in 2021, yeah, he could have gone to the election with that provision there. Mm. And nothing would stop him. So, I think we have to ask ourselves that why is it that even in this situation he feels there is a need to go through the motions don't the you motions. think don't you think it's because of wanting to keep face in front of the international community precisely because mm. and, and and it just represents to a very significant shift in african politics generally that it's no longer possible to rule like in the 70s and 80s in other words every leader needs a little bit of constitutional and legal legitimacy. Mm. So I think that the fact that Museveni feels he needs a constitutional legitimacy to continue, it is itself maybe a sign of hope that all is not lost, mm. that, that, uh, that the country has not yet become such a basket case that it does not have to go through that, the motion of changing the constitution. I did read somewhere where uh, the, the author was saying that um, the president did tell the MPs after the chaos in Arua and the MPs were condemning uh, that chaos, he reminded them that there was a period in this country where there was no parliament. And uh, the author of this article was saying by the time Museveni starts using the period of Amin, which he has been using as, you know, threatening the country. You don't want to go back to that time of Amin. You, you remember what the country has been. You don't want to go back. And then now he's saying, look, there was a time when there was no parliament in this country. That time could come back. I don't think it will. You don't, don't think so? I don't think he can afford to rule without a parliament. What would happen? It's, it's you know, because, uh, you know, one of the things is that the legality eh, helps the president to control the architecture of how the succession is seen. Because one of the reasons why the NRM holds is the belief that there will be some kind of process other than the president's whim mm. to decide who rules next. Mm. Because as soon as he throws away all laws, and does it with parliament, the signal will be that there is no formal structure. There is no law, there is no, no institution. So that, for example, when he wanted to get rid of Prime Minister Mama Mbabazi, he could have done it, but he still went and amended the rules within the NRM. Mm. So I think that it is very important for him to always be seen that he's willing to be bound by some rules even if there are rules he has written for himself. Because the day he gets rid of parliament, mm. he will essentially be unable to rule. He will not be able to hold 
uh, you know, the NRL together. So you think the facade will continue? Yes, and the facade is necessary. Mm. Yeah. Okay, uh, I was also thinking that um, we have seen the, the change of, uh, of the, the, the parliament. How are we doing on time? Ten minutes and then questions. Ten minutes and then questions, yeah. <clears throat> We've seen the torture of MPs and supporters of MPs and opposition political party, uh, party members. We have seen the change of the presidential age limit, among other things. And then, of course, the other major thing that happened this year was the introduction of the social media tax. <laughs> so it's been a, a fundamental year in Uganda, actually. <laughs> because there's been so much happening. And um, <clears throat> the question then has been, um, maybe it's not really a question because it seems quite obvious that this is an attempt at uh, uh, curtailing freedom of speech and uh, um, taming the young people who are rising up against him by the use of social media and so on. <clears throat> Do you think that the government and the authorities are very much afraid of the opposition because they think they can mobilize the masses through the social media? Do you think that lies behind this tax? They do, although I don't believe it is the primary reason for the uh, because for the, for the tax. Mm. And here's why. Because people need to understand that the Ugandan economy is in deep crisis. You get what I mean? I mean, they are, they are, it's, their revenue collections uh, are woefully off. And, uh, you know, uh, the budget, you know, the national debt, like for many countries, is running out of control. And if you see, it's not only Uganda which has done this. Zambia has done it, Benin did it, but backed off from it. So, because they were of such a large pool, and they have a deep economic crisis, I think. I mean, many government agencies haven't paid salary for some people for four months. So I think that the part of it was an honest attempt, though misguided, mm. to get money. What then makes it, but you see, there are political risks. They knew this. So for example, if, uh, the average Ugandan spends uh, $2.7 a month on their airtime and bundles. The effective rate of the tax means that they will have to spend $1.7. Essentially, what they thought would be maybe no more than a 1-2% tax is effectively a 60% tax. So you ask yourself, that's such a crazy thing to do. Huh? So why do you do it? I think that that is now where the politics come. They said, well, if it works, the added benefit of this is that our people or our core constituents are richer than the opposition. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, they are probably more likely to afford the tax and the opposition people will be hit. So that then becomes the secondary attraction of it. Mm -hmm. But it has gone very terribly wrong. I mean, if, uh, you know, the figures for July, August came in, and uh, I think revenues on uh, even mobile money are down by more than 
So I don't see how this will continue for even into the next financial year. But don't you think the revenues from mobile money um, affect mostly the mobile telephone companies? Uh, of course, these companies pay tax to the government, so maybe they will pay less tax as a result yeah. of that. Yeah. Yeah. But do you think government really cares that, uh, that mobile money has been hit? Are they concerned, you think? Because whatever little they are getting by the few who have accepted to pay the tax, is still a lot of money compared to what they had before or didn't have for that matter. Yeah, they, they care. And one of the reasons is that a lot of the big players behind uh, the mobile money are important contributors. They're in the system. <laughs> they are important contributors mm. to the president's campaign. And mm. uh, so, and, and he needs them. He's not going to get the fact checks he used to get from, for, for the next election. And he listens to them. So I think that with numbers like this, he will have to respond. And he has always shown himself willing to respond if it is those kind of his core constituency who come to him and complain. So you think that tax might be done away with or adjusted downwards? Yeah, I, mean, I don't see how it will come, continue mm. for another year. I think you know, the next three, four, five, six months, the impact will be, you know, I. I, uh, I attended an, an event where someone from Facebook was saying that uh, the social media tax and mobile money tax will cut 789 million from Uganda's GDP every year. That's a very high... Uh, hmm. It's a lot of money to lose. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Finally, press freedom. You, according to <laughs> notes that Hilda gave me, you were in and out of court <laughs> 120 times <laughs> between 1997 and 2003 when you were working as the managing editor of Monitor. 120 times he was in court. <laughs> I had told her not to raise And that is way back. Um, and yet we see that it seems to be getting worse and worse. And uh, I think those of us who have been so much on social media, we re you recall a video of a Reuters journalist, I believe, who was holding a camera and was surrounded by army men and was beaten thoroughly. Um, and th there have been reports of journalists being oppressed and repressed. And then there is the issue of self-censorship by the media because many times government companies, government uh, parastatos will not give you advertising ad ad adverts because you are talking against the system. So then you decide, okay, I will not run that story because then I will lose my income. And then the companies that like to be in the good books of the government will also stop giving you ads because if if they give you the ads, the government will look at them as supporters of an enemy. So there is both direct censorship by the torture of journalists and then the self-censorship by the, the way the system is set up. Do you think we are going to see a period where journalism and press freedom is going to go down the drain completely in Uganda? Um, no, you know the way, the way, because this is the thing which... Uh, and, uh, and all opponents of Museveni need to be aware of it. Uh, 
He's not a fool. <laughs> he is a, he, he's a, he will always do what he has to do, but leave himself enough room in order to manage the conversation. In other words, he needs to be able to say that not all freedom has been lost. Hmm. But, uh, so I don't actually think that we'll get to a point where there's no... Press freedom at all. No, no, no. Mm. He is, he is uh, a little too smart for that. Um, but what I see is going to happen in Uganda and other countries is that we are going to have a very intensified form of media repression, especially around the digital space. Now, that has got something to do with a broader thing, which is partly demographic, because what has happened in, uh, in Africa is basically young people have seceded from, from the mainstream. In other words, they, they are so dis they are, they are either so opposed or so alienated or so rejected the system so totally that most of their activities are in the digital space. So they have actually, you know, in the old, in the old days we fought wars in South Sudan, in Biafra, in Nigeria to secede and be independent. I think that people no longer fight wars of succession in Africa using guns. They just migrate to a kind of a digital universe. And the governments are so desperate to, f to impose the structures of the old state control on this digital space where the young people are and they can't dominate, that it has become really an, exist an existential issue um, you know, for them. And, and you know, for a, they, it is so... So if, if you see the, uh, I mean in Kenya for example, they have a press unit and they have a digital media outfit in the president's office. Mm -hmm. And it just hires dozens of people. People do this, they can this. So there is there's a whole, um, the governments recognize that if you want to talk to 60-50% of active people, even to register people to vote. If you put up a billboard or you run a TV campaign, it does not work. You've got to take it to, uh, to social media, you've got to take it into the blogs, you've got to work in that space to get people to mobilize. So the way governments see so social media, they actually see them as a bigger threat to their authority than even political parties. And because of that, they must of necessity bring instruments of repression and control to it. I mean, they did that dramatically in Tanzania and they are so, there is, the mainstream media, TV and newspapers will, I think, continue to get along, but we're going to see a very extreme form of repression in the digital media space. Thank you very much, Charles. I hope it's been enlightening. And we now are open for questions. I forgot to carry my pen. Can someone help me with a pen, if you have one? Yes, please. Please tell us your name. 
And then ask a question. Don't make a statement that takes five minutes. Very, very interesting. I just came from back from Uganda. Um, I've been hiding in plain sight in this country. I'm going to not make a statement, and I hope that my fellow Ugandans are going to jump me afterwards, and etc. I'm one of the royal clan leaders of Uganda. Um, my history is so long back that my auntie was married to Idi Amin. My family supported Museveni in the Bush Wars. I didn't decide to become a new candidate two years ago. I'm building a hospital with her, Uni Yannis, Ulania, definitely once, not Ulania, who's going to be one of the best hospitals in East Africa. Now, quickly, um, I hope that some people do uh, shout and jump, etc. I'm very intrigued in what you guys have been discussing. It's coming a question. I'm not going to be five minutes old again again or a bad cancer, because I grew up in Birkin. <laughs> I know personally Bobby Wine, and he has said, which was very interesting, because as I said, I arrived from Uganda on Friday, and on MTV, for everybody who is in Uganda who knows MTV, not MTV, but MTV, <laughs> he said literally that I don't want to become the new next president of Uganda, but I can be the speaker of the movement. Muse uh, Bobby Wine has gone through a, a class, what we call it, from being extremely poor to do very well in music. And uh, I, I was supposed to grow up in Bukoto Brown Flats. If anybody was in Uganda, who comes from Kampala, knows what that is. No, 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 I'm not Bukoto. <laughs> this is internal joking, sorry. <laughs> He's gone through a class from having no money to end up in employment. I'm very proud of him for that. I will give him a big round of applause, etc. The biggest challenge, and I'm going to ask the journalist, uh, by the way, one of my Kibeti died two years ago, and I was, unfortunately, he's my uncle. And I uh, was sort of suddenly from being in New York, etc. You don't have any plan um, he was the Prime Minister, not Prime Minister, Foreign Minister of Uganda underneath it, I mean. We need to get to the question. My question is this. As I asked Bobby Wine, as I asked my fellow Ugandans, if we take away Museveni today, literally today, we put in Bobby Wine as a new president, do we think, or as a journalist, do you think you gather a shift to a better place? Thank you very much. We'll take your question next, but I think we'll answer that question first, Charles. Uh, why don't we take Sonia's idea? You want to take many. You have uh, no, two. Two. <laughs> you know, just one more and then one I'll answer question. two. Yes? Okay. Yeah. My name is uh, Björn, and I live in Kampala. Just came back for a holiday. As you can see, I'm a Ugandan. <laughs> <laughs> a little light skin to begin with. And I'll try to make it into a question some comments. First of all, uh, I, I, I was in Gayasa when Bobby Wai was elected. 
uh, I'm working in the Gaiasa district with the charity uh, there. And what I see is that the musician and the youth hero was elected. And I think the, the main reason for him being that popular was really the musician Bobby White. Uh, what I'm seeing now is that people around start to get impatient about what is the politics of Bobby White. And they fear that they now have started, I think it's just in the moment, three different candidates mm -hmm. that want to represent the opposition of Uganda. And they fear that those three are starting to be more and more like the other leaders, that their personal position is important. Uh, the second that I see, which I think may be my comment, is that there is also a danger in Bobby White getting so popular outside Uganda. You get some kind of, let's protect Uganda towards everyone criticizing Uganda. So you get some kind of uh, resisting movement, supporting Museveni, because the outside world is so rude to Uganda uh, through that situation with Bobby White. That might be a problem. Uh, I do not think that this OTT, the social media attacks, is a problem. Uh, I saw my friends, they disappeared for some few, few days or weeks, and then they're back, and they use it just like before. It was a very smart move that they waited one week, and then they made 1% mobile money tax, and then they reduced that to half a percent, giving people some kind of victory. And then they had forgotten the OTT, and it works just like before. But, I, but my, my main uh, question is that, uh, isn't it dangerous that we, I see all the problems with Mussolini, of course, but isn't it dangerous that we start to see some kind of the good guy and the bad guy? Because there is there's a big scale of gray tones, and no one is the perfect one, and no one is the total bad one. And I think that's, can be easy be a problem even for Bobby Wine. Uh, today or this year, every year it's about one million youth in Uganda that needs a job. And it increases with about one million a year. If Bobby Wine came to power, as you asked, what would happen when people saw that even he could not be that magician giving one million youth a new job every year? Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and you know that that's why at the beginning I said he has captured the imagination. But the bigger question is whether he's the relevant leader for the times. And uh, and, and and you know I think your two are uh, you know related. I uh, I come from Eastern Uganda, and uh, I'll uh, it's it's. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I am slightly beyond your kingdom. <laughs> Next door. <laughs> yeah. So, 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 so one of the things that uh, um, the eastern part of Uganda has become so alienated from the Uganda National Project that uh, I, uh, I remember when uh, when there is football in the eastern part of Kenya. You know, that part of the country, it's all about Kenyan football, it's about Kenyan everything. And, uh, and there was a bridge that uh, near where our country home is some years ago, which was broken. So when we went there, we said, okay, let us do something about this bridge. And, they, and you know, 
let us talk to officials and see whether we can fix it. And the interest of the people where they say that you actually mean you can talk to government officials and they can fix this bridge. In other words, their position of default is that Kampala will do nothing. And they don't feel they are part of this country. They don't follow its culture, they don't not involved in sport, they don't do anything with it. Now what has happened is that, you know, in, uh, in, in 2013, Kenya started to have um, decentralization. And decentralization in Kenya sends 15% of the budgets of, you know, uh, of a certain port to the counties. So all of a sudden, there's a lot of money in the Kenyan counties now, because of corruption, a lot of corrupt officials in Kenya take that money and invest it in Eastern Uganda. So Eastern Uganda is going through an economic boom. But it's got to do with the corruption capital from Kenya, not from Kampala. And, uh, and, and so one of the things I keep asking myself, what does someone like Bobby Wine do to make Eastern Uganda part of Uganda again? And it's a very difficult uh, thing, and I don't even think it is something which he has thought about. And uh, and you know because it's too complex. But the next leader will have to deal with that kind of issue. So I think that if you talk about the big issues that reconstitute uh, Uganda, you, you know, because my own view is that if Museveni, like you said, were to drop dead tomorrow. Uh, I think Uganda as a country will not exist anymore. Really? I don't think anyone will accept a central authority from a people other than their own. That, that is my sense. It has to be a very exceptional leader. It can be done, but if it happened at this point, it might be very, very difficult. So, so someone hopes that for people like Bobby Wine and all of these other people, for some of the progressive elements in the NRM, that this is the issue which is exciting them. So to, to both of you, yes, is that it is it's not so much the good or bad guy, but I think that this country is in a situation which is much more complex than many of the political players seem to believe that they can do. Now, on the question of OTT tax, I mean, we just have, you could be right, eh? we just have to wait and see what the numbers, uh, you know, look like. But, 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 I mean, if you look at the MTN's latest figures, did you look at that? It's, it is down 50%. So, it is, it's not so much that the government is going to respond to the people anymore, but whether they can take the losses. So, uh, you know, as a result, Facebook pulled out of the fiber optic cable, which in Uganda is very, very suboptimal. And, and so a lot of those kind of monies now spill into Rwanda and Kenya. And it goes to the next very important thing. You are right that in a way, if Bobby Wine becomes uh, too popular outside, it can be a disadvantage at home. But I think... He does not need to be popular outside. He just has to be popular in East Africa. Because I think that East Africa has reached a situation where the politics feeds too much on each other. You can no longer be a leader in East Africa and ignore the sentiments 
of these East African youthful constituencies. So you see someone like uh, Kagame in Rwanda who understands it. He has exploited it to very good effect. And you know, uh, Kenyatta Huru Kenyatta is beginning to figure it out. And uh, I don't think that they are going to, uh, you can ignore the popularity of a youthful political leader in other East African countries. It would be too costly. Thank you. Yeah. One person here, one person there. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, if Donald Trump and George W. Bush can lead the country, Bob Wayne can. That's, that's I'm very disappointed actually in your tone. I've always uh, respected you uh, as a tough uh, man, but I'm very disappointed here that you have uh, this weak and discouraging tone in your conversation. But that's not the question. Okay, my question is why, uh, as, as a journalist, and uh, also as uh, you as a journalist, and also as one of the elites in you, in in Africa or in Uganda, why is it that always when Africans have a problem, political problem mostly, we come to places uh, in Europe to discuss our problem? I've never seen Norwegians or Americans in Uganda discussing their po political problems. Can you try to explain to us? Uh, just a moment. Are you talking about him being here, for example? Us and him, of course. Yeah, but yeah. he's been invited by the fellas from yeah, Africa, that's, so that... Are you, going, are you going to defend him? No. I'm can, just you let, you can, you, can you let him... Uh, uh, I'm just telling you the facts, yeah, okay? That answer, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, I'll come uh, to uh, that. Uh, hi, I'm Louis, my name. And I have two questions. I'll be brief. Well, uh, this goes to your colleague. My profession, Mr. Andrew Mender, he always like, asked Bobby to give us his manifesto ideology. But we have had a lot of to know, we have had Kizobesti and that beautiful manifesto and ideology. So why are the elites making this situation complicated? So why is it that the elites will not want to participate in politics, but they prefer to sit on their keyboards and keep on shooting? Then another question is that the Ugandans in the diaspora, what advice do you have for them? How can we participate in the democracy back home? Thank you. Charles? The, the, uh, you know, on, uh, on, uh, on his question, first of all, I am, in, I am an, an internationalist. You know, I, 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 uh, I believe that the way you succeed is uh, and uh, by by getting the best of what you can wherever in the world, and that often, often, um, and it is even the way you protect yourself. So it is why, for example, you are here and not in Uganda. You get what I mean? Yeah. So, so I, I mean, if if you can explain to yourself. And you can come to terms with why you are here. You shouldn't ask the question, because you know you must see a world as a place which offers a solution for you to to engage and solve your issues at various levels, locally on something. So all the pieces really come uh, uh, together. So it shouldn't be, and you know, um, an issue. And uh, wherever you can have an ear to listen to your cause, you should speak. 
you know it's it's um, it's 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 how you grow strong uh, you know I think so um, any leader can become um, oh yes sure I mean you know um, <coughs> you see the thing is that uh, the success of George Bush and Trump uh, is uh, because whether you like it or not they actually do represent something a constituency which came with a set of policies that if you throw at it it would give you a little bit of legitimacy enough to rule so and we get to you know we get to uganda you, if you look at history eh, why did Museveni fail or, or I don't actually think he's been a total failure. <laughs> you know, that's, you know, let me say, I think, I think that he's just going through a crisis the last 10, 12 years. But, but, but one of the very basis of uh, Museveni's rule is that, you know, you know Uganda is, has historically been divided around, you know, north-south. And, uh, you know, Museveni was propelled power because the country had been dominated by a northern military elite and securitariat. And there was, there was a very strong case for this to be broken. And so there was a sense in which, and rightly, the South had been seen again for long it had been robbed and expropriated. So the emotion that drove the movement was the restitution of southern land rights, uh, the return of the surplus from southern uh, farming uh, economy to southerners other than just being expropriated by a northern elite. And, and then that comes, Museveni comes to power, and that really becomes the heart, or, or well, the fuel which drove uh, his politics. But because Museveni is also a leftist and a kind of a nationalist, a Pan-African, he was able to craft a national program on that. But, but that has run out of control, and you know, he effectively failed to be a national leader and we had in the north and the northeast we have we had a war so why do i say this is that it would be a mistake for bobby wine to just to because the factors are sufficient for him to take power it depend on a few things i don't think they're sufficient for him to be a successful national leader because he needs to move beyond these very agrarian kind of factors that drive, you know, Ugandan politics. Because he will be a Museveni again, but he will just be a Museveni from a different part of the country. So I just think that for like people in the north and the east, how does he dress? I was, I was, uh, I was, uh, I was talking to Niels. One of the things that happened in parts of the country, particularly the East, is that the East in Uganda is facing real risk and parts of the West of a climate change collapse, basically, environmental collapse. 
So a lot of the political grievances has got to do with that. In that kind of situation, it's not able to support the kind of rural agricultural economy on which those societies depended on. And uh, it's how you solve that problem depends on whether, for example, you think that the biggest problem is youth unemployment. Youth unemployment is a problem, but it's not an existential problem. If you are thinking of what will really kill Uganda, they are totally different factors. And uh, this is a country which in 2025, 70% of Ugandans still rely on fuel wood to cook. But by 2025, that country is going to run out of fuel, I mean wood. We are just seven years away. And it doesn't matter whether all the youth are Indian employed. If you do not begin to intervene with the kind of policies which are to stop attacks on uh, stop attacks on uh, on wetlands in Museveni's own hometown of Mbarara, the a Coca-Cola plant they are closed for the simple reason that couldn't get water. They are now looking to pipe water from Lake Mburo, which is like 40 or something kilometers away. The ecological system of the Lake Mburu area and park is going to go up. And the cost of water when you get it from Lake Mburo and you get it to Mbarara, it will be more expensive than, I don't know, the most expensive champagne. So it's, 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 it's uh, I think that those are, for me, those are the things that keep me awake at night. So, so these are the things that Ugandans excise about on social media. They're important, they're good headlines, but I don't actually think that for the security of our country 10 years down the road, they are the issues. Thank you very much. We'll take your question and your question. Yeah, one, two, three, four, and that's it. Right? Thank you. Uh, mm -hmm. My name is Sam Riesi. I'm the National League Advisor of the Democratic Party, the second oldest party in Africa. I'm its lawyer. I am my parents were DP members. Yes. Mm -hmm. I'm <laughs> one of the leading lawyers of Bobby Wyman. Mm -hmm. And I'm the lawyer for the popular 33. And I got them out of the coolest. One of my questions is, within my experience as his lawyer, when Bobby Wine was in hospital, when the state did not want him to leave, first, before I get to that, he was charged by the court martial, and the, the, the call, the shots that we call, it was not because uh, Museveni and the court martial wanted to let him free. It's because of the interaction we had with the diplomatic call that forced and twisted him into dropping these charges. Fact. Does that mean Museveni is still willing to listen to the international community or is one of those few gestures that he throws across? Secondly, 
in attempting to obtain bail for Bobby White and others. The judge in charge of the matter was very interested in assisting, even when there are so many calls. He resisted, and we had them out freely, without much opposition from the DPP. Does that mean that President Museveni is still willing to abide by the institutions of government, civil judiciary? Thirdly, on a political note, as a body politic in the opposition, at first we saw Bobby Wine, he's my friend, as a spoiler. One reason, that by the time he came on the scene, we had for so long found a means of getting away with the two old bulls. That's the Museveni and Besige question. We had started and we did form what we call the new formation. And in this new formation manifesto, we wanted to solve the issues like the divides you're talking about between the north and south, between the different spectrum of life, social spectrum in Uganda. Then here comes Bobby White. After setting up a few of our structures, this new formation structure is rushing to Magere to pay homage to Bobby Wine, the new boy on the block, because we cannot take off without his blessing. <laughs> Our worry is, can't this bubble of my friend, my client, cause another vacuum, just in case, because it is possible that Bobby Wine can be killed. But all the investment that were put in a few leaders that wanted to fill the space minus uh, KB and seven, what would happen? I see it is a challenge. That's why I believe, as you say, that we need to be very careful uh, on this Bobby Wine. We need to plan. And I came here for answers. I didn't even want to ask. And I thank you for at least having this forum. And I want so many of such because we want more answers than questions. I thank you. Thank you. Can you handle the three, or should we take one more? Should we take one more? You want yeah. to handle this first? No, let's take one more. One. Yeah, yes? Yeah, I'll be brief. Nice seeing you, Richard. Hi. I'm your big fan from uh, Capital Guard. Okay. Yeah, we're back. Yeah. My question is I hear about the Mohozi project because it's a big influence, I think, with the Bobby Wine effect, which is going on now. Why do you talk about it? What can you talk about it? Thank you very much. We'll answer those questions and two, take two last ones, one here and one there. Okay. The, the, uh, so, so first of all, the broad question, does he still uh, listen? Is this something? Yes. Museveni still listens to the international community and subject pressure if it is good for his politics. Because it's, it's uh, he, the handling of uh, the message he wanted to send had been said that he will answer with extreme means to any challenge. So once that had been done, eh, 
it was not possible to allow the court process to continue. Because then he also makes the argument that, look, the guy, and they also announced that they would investigate so that he is still able to come across as someone who respects the processes. And remember I told you that you must always work on the assumption that uh, uh, Museveni is a very smart guy. Not on the assumption, the reality. He is very smart. So once he had that, once they had hammered him and they had done things which people couldn't believe, uh, you know, he, he would do, he was perfectly happy to let the legal process. So if it works, if he scores political points from it, uh, he, he, you know, he will do. And then also, you know, um, the, the other thing is that it is very important for Museveni to maintain a certain posture which allows him to kind of assume this position of an African leader on certain issues. It's a very, very important fact of how he identifies even his domestic legitimacy. It's because he says he's a Pan-Africanist, he's an East Africanist, he has supported the liberation movement. And therefore, for him to do that, he needs to make certain accommodation to the opinion of, of other people. And I don't think that he will ever give that away. It is too important for him to be seen as a, as a, you know, bigger than just a Ugandan chief. Um, so it gets to, to your question that, uh, yes, you know, I have, uh, I'm not sure what would happen if Bobby fell out of uh, the scene today because it has got to do with how Ugandans form their political loyalties. There is, uh, there are levels and I think, uh, and, and some of it is superficial and emotional. I think the emotional one right now is owned by, uh, by, uh, by Bobby. The material ones are very different. And let me give you an example. One of, uh, one of the, one of the Museveni's generals who came from the bush, he was very, very hostile to the government of Milton Abbott of UPC. But uh, his mother wasn't. So, so his mother always told him that she would support Museveni because he ended, but her heart is always with Obote. And she said that because Obote carried out the land reforms which allowed them to make more money from their coffee. And that until Obote came on, they struggled on the land and were always poor. So I think that the, that those deep-seated things are the areas on where I think more enduring political alliances are built. So for example, and people sneer at this, the fact that Museveni's ended impunity and widespread it's still a very, very big, you know, the guy used to win even in places where the opposition would, for example, get 60% uh, or 70% of the vote, 60. He would still win 90% of the women's vote 
And why? Because for women, the issue of security was always much more important than for the men. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's if, if you sneer at those things and if you don't invest in those kind of things, it's going to be very difficult. So I think that where Bobby Wine is now, because he has not developed those kind of uh, real on the ground things, I think that we will have less of a virtue. And so the next question was, who was the gentleman one? We had, uh, you, you want to, I don't no, know. No, 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 which, which was the other question? Sorry, it has skipped my mind. It was, uh, oh, oh, yes, yes, Mohose project. <laughs> okay, so first, have a very, very heretical view. Because Ugandans are, uh, it's, for those who are not very familiar with Uganda, the, the longest any government in Uganda ever ruled is eight years. Museveni has now ruled for more than all the seven governments, previous governments combined. Why is that important? Because every time when other governments have ended, after seven, even five years, it's been shocking the things that happen. People attack the, or the supporters of the previous government, burn their homes, cut off their heads with chainsaws and things like that. So one of the things that and I've been involved in several discussion groups about this, that if that is what happens to governments after they have been in power for seven, eight years, what is going to happen after 30 or something years? So it's, it's something that many people are afraid to think of. And therefore, because of that, I think that any change that happens now, irrespective of of uh, how good it is, and which is one of the reasons why, by the way, I think that a Bobby Wine president would make change. Because I think we just need to change and end this. Because I don't want to think what will happen in Uganda after it has been ruled by one man for 36 years. It's scary. So I think that if Muhozo had become president, if just because he's not he's a different leader, there would be some benefit from it. No. You know, just if, even though he's the man's son. You know, uh, it's not, but it is, it gives you an opportunity, what opportunity? to reset the very poisonous politics of Museveni. It's, it's perhaps 10%, but it's better than nothing. But having said that, it's not going to happen. And why is that? Because to Museveni, the Museveni does not want to entertain the idea of an alternative to him. Even his son. Because once we accept that his son is an alternative to him, it opens up the very idea that someone else can be an alternative. So he does not want the idea that, so despite what I've said, I don't believe that he's grooming his son. But the second reason is that Museveni is very jealous about his legacy. If Mohozi became president, two things can happen. He can 
destroy everything Museveni has done, or he can do better than him. And he's not willing to accept either of those. He's not willing to accept that his son, he doesn't want Uganda to say, oh, we had the wrong Museveni in power. <laughs> and he does not want Uganda to say, oh my God, eh? Eh? this, the Museveni house, destroyed it all finally. So things are surfacing. It's like Museveni or the sun is the one governing everything. This SFC is doing a lot of work, even we don't know who's commanding it. Is it Museveni or what's it? Uh, no, no, no. I think I don't think he is no longer commander of the S SFC. He's a presidential advisor. Yeah, he's a presidential advisor. But you, you know, you Ugandan. This guy has been our president for thirty-two years. Eh? You should understand him. <laughs> he is not going to let, he's not going to let eh, uh, his son inherit his, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's not him. How much time do we have? Two very short questions. <laughs> Two very short questions. We had yeah. your question and we had your question. Yeah, very my, short. Yeah, my question is short and sweet. Uh, uh, just a moment, you need to speak loudly okay. so people can hear what you're saying. In your assessment, would you think a federal system would work better for Uganda? Because you said about the Eastern being more connected to Kenya now. Um, we, I mean, we have 36 different tribes, different cultures. Is it just natural that it should be a federal system where, the, for example, the services are through the, like it used to be back in the 60s? Thank you. Okay, thank you. Question, no statement. Mm. Mm. Yeah? Oh. I can see complete with the red one. I have two questions, but very brief. Number one is, why does the Western, the Western world continue supporting and uh, giving funds to the government of Museveni, and yet they see it that their fund is ended up being swindled in broad daylight? For instance, the cases of the long way, the Gabi fund, Global Fund and uh, this recent uh, refugee fund scandal that happened at OPM's office, so the Prime Minister. That is one question. Why do they continue supporting and if they see the government is corrupt 100%? Second question is that who are, who, who are responsible for the rampant killings of the people in Uganda? The, rest, the question in point is that the late AIGP, we haven't seen the report, the, um, uh, the late Brigadier uh, Mayombo, we never seen the report, Aronde Nyakairima, the women in Entebbe that were killed, over 40 of them, just the last year, 2017, and uh, recently over the, M, the member of parliament, over Rua. Thank you, we get the question, we get the, the picture. Yeah, who are responsible for the killings? Thank you. Okay, so to your very short question, I'll give a very short answer. Like, like Kenya, I don't think Uganda has a future which is not based on some highly decentralized politics. I, I honestly, it's possible, but I don't see it. So, so yes, we will have, it may not be a federal system, but it will have to be a, some highly evolved system. It's the only way we can kind of keep the thing together and... Uh, Keep it going. And then to the question of uh, why does uh, 
why that... Uh, the Western world gave yeah. funds. You, you, you see, Museveni understands that he cannot just take without giving. And um, if, uh, and, and, and you know, really, you have to, uh, I, I mean, let's even leave alone what's happening in South Sudan, what happened in the Congo with, uh, with, uh, with Mobutu and all those things. You really just have to go to Somalia uh, to see why the West will uh, support Museveni. It is, they have. You know, you read about this thing, but you really just have to go and see what's happening in that country. Eh? How it has, I mean, I've been back and forth, how over four or five years it's just rebuilt. There are still these other things. Eh? And, uh, and just the, the, uh, the, the losses and the pain that Uganda was willing to take, Museveni was willing to take, to make that uh, happen and how much it has made a lot of things around the stability of the Horn of Africa are possible. You know, if they hadn't undertaken, you know, for those of you, the, when the Uganda mission went into Mogadishu in 2007, you, you see, a lot of these places, you go into a peace mission and you find a place, it's secured. They just flew planes full of soldiers into a Somalia, which was totally under the control of uh, Shabab. One of them was shot. It is still a huge circus, I mean, um, carcass. So, but one of them landed. Then they jumped out of that plane and fought and secured the airport. And the next day they brought another one. And they fought, you know, they were, they were, uh, they, they would take, a month they would take 10 meters face to face with Shabab. They took hundreds of casualties. So I just think that for, for countries which have a bigger view of their geopolitical interests, you know, uh, you know, the, you know, the Americans, the British, and, you know, the Italians in the Horn of Africa, they just have to reward him. There is no way they cannot. So and and uh, and he plays that game. Uh, you know he plays that game very well. He did it in uh, in southern Sudan. He did it in Rwanda. It, it there are people who oppose him for it, uh, but he's been able to project himself as someone who is willing to pay the ultimate price. When uh, I was so. Someone who was uh, before Museveni in, in 1985, he was flying to Nairobi for the peace talks which failed. And he met a group of people and uh, he said he was a revolutionary and he was the only revolutionary in the NRM. So the people attacked him. You always think you are the only guy who is smart. Why do you think you are the only revolutionary? And then he told them, because of everyone in this room, I am the only one who is willing to sacrifice my family, even their lives, for the politics. And that informs how he behaves. He is willing 
to go to levels which most people are not willing to do. And therefore it allows him to do incredible things which he then trades with for uh, as a political currency. Thank you. Uh, have we taken the question? Uh, Robert, Robert Killings. Do you have a theory about it? Uh, no. I no. What, what, uh, what, I know, uh, what I know as a fact, not for about, about the women who were killed, now we have a clear sense of why that was happening because it was a contest between for leadership of the security. Uh, part of it was the budget, but also for control. And I think the people who were behind it succeeded because they managed to get the Inspector General out of power because it was shown as ineffective. So the killing of the women, that, that is clear. They were, they were pawns in a, in a very cynical big game. As to the one who is killing these high-profile leaders, honestly, and we've done a lot of work to try and understand it, we don't. Excuse um, me, Annette, did you not answer my two questions? Sorry, which ones? About the elites and... Uh, Why do elites seem to attack whoever comes up and... Uh, they don't stand for elections. They, don't, they, they themselves don't stand for elections. They ask, for example, they're asking, uh, Bobby Wine, where is your manifesto? What are your plans? Yeah. And yet, for them, they don't... Yeah. Well, but you know, you know, one of the things that has happened is that, you know, after, after 30 years of power, 32 years of power, a lot of vested interests, a lot of elite vested interests have built up around the M7 system. So, so it's, it's, and for them, they are, uh, they are, um, they have amassed a lot of wealth. Eh? And in the past, it wouldn't have mattered. But today, it does matter. Because in the history of Uganda, um, I think the longest regime ever was... Uh, you know, one of the Buganda kings in 18-something who was president for what? I mean, he was king for 32 years or something, or 30. No one has ruled as long as Museveni. So a lot of wealth and vested interests get up. So when the elites say, what is your problem? What they're saying is, we have spent these 30 years, we have made this kind of fortune. What is your plan for protecting it? You know, what, what are your transition? So it's a cold one. For show us the sign, eh? show us the sign that you will not seize it all or something of the sort. So, so, so that, so that's why they ask of Bobby Wine a lot. Eh? It's not that they are really, you know, then you know they are looking for a very elaborate program. Eh? But basically, the good ideology and manifesto and Olarotuno, how comes they do not work those words? Well, well, one of the reasons why they didn't win has got to do with who counts the votes in Uganda. Yeah. <laughs> I, I probably believe that Messiger would be president <laughs> under, under a Kenyan-type electoral system, but, but that's... Charles? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, think, I think the last thing... Uh, uh, Charles, was just asked. to comment also on uh, yeah. something to add on. In Uganda, we, only, we have only seen one president for about 33 years. Actually, we don't know the future for Uganda. Everyone is uncertain. Museven is a human being. Suppose tomorrow he dies, that means there's going to be chaos. So now, if you see a young man like Bobby Wine trying to come up, I think everyone should support him. Because these other guys here, like the Museven, 
They also came into power when they had 32 years. 32, 32 years. So, so for you to say that Bobby Wine is still young, he has uh, no experience, no experience. I see, like you guys are just no, 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 no. By the way, I, no, 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 no. I didn't say no, no. I didn't say he's young and he has no experience. There were two things, you know. Museveni represented very specific interests in 1986. Those guys who put their millions of Uganda in the business, and it was very clear, the restoration of the king was on the board, the, the, the capitalist class and the agrarian class in the South. Let him answer. You need to give him time to answer. So, so what I'm saying is that you, it, it's, 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 it's not to me a question of age, and he can make, uh, but he needs to build eh? the kind of interest and all of that. It, it doesn't prevent it doesn't prevent him from becoming president. But but you are presuming, of course, in this room that he will come to power through an electoral process of some sort. No, no, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> 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 the problem for everyone. Uh, okay. Oh, okay. Then, then if that is the case, then what he represents becomes the material. Okay, is, is I it, mean, is it, is it no, no, we're going to ask you a but, but uh, for now we have already taken up uh, more than we asked for from Charles' time. So I think uh, for those of you who are more uh, interested to hear about press freedom in Africa, we are having an event tomorrow with the governance group. And we have, um, even here today, there are some uh, journalists from Angola. So we'll hear more about press freedom in East Africa and in Angola specifically. Perfect. So if you have uh, interest in that, as I'm sure you have, uh, come to Lecho Tudusa tomorrow at 6. And for now, you can continue the discussion. And very nice to see you all. And we have recorded this, so we'll make a podcast after. So thank you. And let's give Annette and Charles a warm applause.